All right, you can open up your Bibles to Joshua. We're in Joshua chapter 6. No, actually, that's not totally true. We're in Joshua 5.13, but it feels like we're in Joshua 6. So open up your Bibles to the, the area of Joshua, and that's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, let's pray together as we prepare to hear God's Word. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful to gather here to sing your praises, the, the very words that you have written for us, to, to echo those back to you in, in heartfelt prayer. We pray that um, they would uh, pierce deeply and be remembered by us for every season that they are needful. Thank you for this uh, word that you have for us tonight. Thank you for how it displays your greatness, your love, your compassion, your grace, and your holiness. We pray that we would have ears ready to hear and hearts ready to change and be bent. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, as I was uh, getting ready to go to bed, and as I was laying in my bed, I was reading, and, and this is a very effective tool for going to bed for me, uh, just reading and fall right to sleep. Uh, and I was reading a, a book that just randomly found on my Kindle, and, and uh, there was a quote in it, now the, the author was quoting someone else, but uh, this kind of, it was a part of his argument. He, he said this, uh, the road to atheism is littered with Bibles read cover to cover. The road to atheism is littered with Bibles read from cover to cover. Now, to be clear, this was actually a Christian book. It was an apologetic book, and it was, it was making a point about how young people often, and I'll use this phrase loosely, lose their faith when they grow up and move out of their house and move out of their church and all of the familiar stories and start actually realizing what is actually in the Bible and what the Bible actually says. And that's what causes people, according to this book, to become atheists or to become agnostics, to distance themselves from any knowledge of this God as they begin to hear about him and read of him. And I kind of think that's true. The, the Bible, if you read it from cover to cover, is a bruising book. It's a bruising book because of the God that it explains and introduces to you. And if you're not ready, if you're not prepared, if you've never heard about this God before, you're going to run into some intense chapters on who our God is. Now, the real problem, and I suspect this is the author's point as well, is not with God, and it's not with your Bibles. It's actually with, with you and with the cultural Christianity that we're surrounded by, right? We, we live in a place, in a time in church history, where people have all sorts of views of God that meet their fancy, right? Uh, young people today, especially young people that grow up in the church, grow up with a, I'll call, happy view of God, instead of a holy view of God. What is a happy view of God versus a holy view of God? Happy here is used in a negative sense. I would say happy means God is what I want him to be. 
God is who I feel like he should be. I have a happy view of God because I like him. He's nice. He's kind in all of the ways that I want him to be kind, and he'll do everything that I want him to do. I have a happy view of God because it makes me feel happy and good about myself. Whereas a holy view of God says this, God is who he says he is, and I will worship him in how he reveals himself to me. So, if you have a happy view of God, hey, God is the way I want him to be, when you read a passage like tonight's passage, it will bite and bruise you. And it may be shocking to you to even read. And to be honest, the Bible is a very troubling and disturbing place. And it's not primarily troubling and disturbing because of the world that it describes or even you in its descriptions of you. It's actually a very troubling and disturbing place in, in the God that it describes. What he is like. How he operates and why he does what he does. That can be a very troubling place for someone with a happy view of God. But I would say to you that your faith needs the whole Bible. Matter of fact, a strong faith is a strong faith because it has shaped its mind and its heart based on the entirety of Scripture from cover to cover. That is a strong faith, a rich faith, a faith that endures. And that's why I love being in places like the Old Testament and I love being in places like Joshua because it shows you who your God is like and why he is the way he is. And we're going to look at our God as he goes to war. This passage here is, is kind of a setup for the whole entire book of Joshua in a way. It's like this is how God's going to fight all throughout Joshua. So, so the, the narrator takes a good bit of time here, but this is important for you to hear about how God goes to war because you need to know the kind of God that you are in a relationship to. You need to know what he is like. You need to know why he does what he does. So we're just going to learn a few things about our God as he, as he, as he begins the conquest here tonight. We're going to just kind of look at Four four qualities of God. We're going to look at God's presence. We're going to look at God's purposes. We're going to look at God's holiness. And then finally, we're going to look at God's grace. So let's look at the first thing. The first thing we learn about our God from this conquest narrative is God's commanding presence. The first thing I want you to notice about God is God's commanding presence. Let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua 5.13. And you see Joshua and Israel have just crossed the Jordan in a spectacular crossing, right? That's what we learned about last week. They have just enjoyed the Passover for, for the first time in many years. And now they are faced with their first obstacle. And this is where we are in chapter 5, verse 13. Now it happened that when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? We're, we're introduced to a mysterious stranger who doesn't fully reveal himself 
to us, to Joshua. As a matter of fact, the, the narrative kind of unfolds his identity slowly, like the same amount of time that Joshua is realizing who this man is, we're realizing who this man is as well. And, and who is this figure, this mysterious figure that is coming to Joshua? Well, there's a few things you should notice about him. First off, he appears as a man. He, he appears also ready for action. Notice he's standing. He is ready for action. Notice also he is described as dangerous. He has a sword drawn. Now that's a very interesting expression because if you just search that expression like the, the same time those two Hebrew words go together, sword drawn, there's a few other places, but only a, a small handful, a small handful if that's a thing, just a less than a handful, four other places where you see this expression, sword drawn, and it's always referring to an angel with a sword drawn about to attack something. Matter of fact, it's always describing a figure in the Old Testament known as the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. He is postured as dangerous. This, this figure is ready for war. He's ready to strike down anyone that opposes him or his mission or his people. And notice the question that Joshua asks him first off. I, I love this question because I love the answer, really. He, he says this, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And that little preposition there, for, could be translated probably to, uh, do you belong to us or do you belong to them? Whose side are you on? And notice what this figure says in verse 14. No. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> Rather, this is what he says. No, rather, I indeed come now as commander of the host of Yahweh. And then what did Joshua do? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said, What has my Lord to say to his slave? Another thing we, we notice about this man right, right away, as soon as he says this, this figure doesn't answer to anyone, right? What, what is Joshua's question? Do you, do you belong to us or do you belong to our adversaries? Are you, are you on my team or you are, on, are you on their team? No. I am not beholden to you or to them. I do not belong to either side. I am here as a commander of the Lord of hosts. Notice it's almost like he's saying, Joshua, there's a third option. There's a third option. I, I, am, I am not just here to do whatever you want, and I'm not just here to do whatever they want. I am here to do whatever the Lord God wants, right? He doesn't answer to anyone. Joshua falls on his face. Then verse 15 really gives away the identity, I think, of this man. The commander of the host of Yahweh said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the giveaway. He carries God's holiness with him. He carries God's presence with him. As a matter of fact, that very idea, the place where you're standing is holy ground, therefore take off your sandals, what does that remind you of? That reminds you of Exodus 3, where, get this, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a bush to tell him to go back to Egypt and rescue God's people. This figure, this angel of the Lord is a mysterious Old Testament figure, but 
Notice this. He carries the prerogatives of the Lord. He receives worship as the Lord would receive, and he demands it at the same time. He, he carries the presence of the Lord. He is what a lot of theologians would refer to as a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament, uh, a pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. That is always the, the connotations that you feel when this figure shows up in the Old Testament, right? And, and notice this, though. Notice his, his commanding presence that he brings. Notice the tone of this figure as he comes. He is not here to help out his people with their problems. He is not fighting their battles. He is coming to fight his own battle. He is coming to lead his own army. He is not joining the fight. He is leading the fight, engaging in the fight. And there's this this interesting little thing that we always do, um, particularly in Western society when we come to narratives like this. We, We want to make it so personalized, like, oh, look at these big walls. I'm going to apply this to my life. How? Well, I'm going to say any struggle that I face is like those big walls of Jericho, and God's going to help me knock down those struggles. But notice here, this narrative even pokes fun at that popular application, right? The Lord's saying, I am not here to deal with your problems. I am here to deal with my problems, and dealing with my problems actually might create more problems for you. Do you get that? Right? Sometimes God's purposes are at cross-purposes with your comfort. But he is not beholden to us, and he has a commanding tone. I am here to do my war. And notice also, God's worship is most important here. Before any instructions are given, matter of fact, Joshua, we're expecting instructions, right? Right after verse 14, what does my Lord want us to do? We're expecting military instructions. But instead of that, he says, worship is most important. More important than plans is a right posture towards me as your commander and chief. Matter of fact, it's interesting. Some people would say a new story begins here in 6.1, but there's many reasons to think that the story continues and that 6.1 is just a parenthesis. By the way, the, the, the author, you know, he likes to make his, his random strategic parentheses just at a dramatic points in the storyline, like what we saw with the Jordan River. They're just about to cross, and then you're giving me a, a parenthetical thought about how the river is overflowing all of its banks. What in the world, right? That's probably what's going on in six one two. Just as the angel of the Lord is about to give his instructions, which is what we see in six two. what happens? We have this dramatic tension being built with a description of the problem, just like the Jordan River was described back in chapter 3, right? Now Jericho was tightly shut because the sons of Israel, no one went out and no one came in as well. But, but what does this tell us? The, the author is saying, what's most important about this plan is your worship towards me, is your obedience towards me. Is the, is the commanding presence that I bring. God's praise is his priority. Not your comfort, not your plans, God's praise is. That's God's commanding presence. The next thing we see about God from this conquest is, notice this, God's intentional purposes. Secondly, see God's intentional purposes. Now, don't miss this because I know you've heard this story dozens of times. 
I mean, you still probably have images in your head of flannel graph characters moving in front of the walls of Jericho. But, but we, we shouldn't get over the fact that this plan that the Lord God prescribes for taking out Jordan is ready, or sorry, Jericho, is, it's strange. It doesn't make sense. Notice 6.2. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, I'd say this is the same encounter. See, I have given Jericho into your hand and its kings and the valiant warriors, and you shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do, uh, you shall do for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow trumpets. And it will be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down beneath itself, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Now, verse Verse 1 should, should remind us here that the city is, is tightly shut up, right? No one's allowed to go in. No one's allowed to come out. That's the sense there of the words. And, and there's a big obstacle here, and it is the, the walls of Jericho. Now, I want to be clear. I maybe misspoke a few weeks ago when I said there weren't walls. There definitely were walls. Matter of fact, they were pretty menacing walls to be sure, and especially if you're the nation of Israel with no siege warfare experience whatsoever, these would have been huge walls. There were actually two walls encircling the city. There would have been um, a smaller set of walls and then a larger set encircling that smaller set. Um, The city was elevated with each wall. There was kind of like a higher level of the city, so the, the first set of walls uh, brought the city up this much higher than, than the ground floor, and then the next set of walls brought the city up that, uh, that amount of height as well. Matter of fact, I've got a picture here, if my slideshow works, which slideshows are the bane of my existence. Uh, so there you go. Uh, apparently it's not working, but that's okay. No, there it is. Okay, so this is, this is something called a tell. It's actually a hill. It's usually what fortifications were built on. And this is actually the, the hill that Jericho was built on. So it wasn't just a flat, a flat plain that Jericho was on. It was actually on this small little hill called the tell. And then the two walls, uh, there's another picture here. If you, there you go. You can see, now I flipped this map upside down for the purpose of you being able to see how it's the same, right? So you see the, the kind of texture of the hill over there. <laughs> and then the other, the other map shows you kind of where the walls were. So you see that gray line there? That's the outer, that's the outer wall. And then the, the, pink, the pinkish purple uh, line, that's the inner wall. What's the matter with it? No, never mind. Okay, all right. All right. Um, so let me explain something. That outer wall probably had about a a 15-foot embankment or kind of a retaining wall that was that was made out of stone it was really high Um, and then above that above that was built like about um, a six foot deep 18 to 24 foot high mud brick wall on top of that so you've got a 15-foot stone kind of retaining wall 
And then on top of that, you've got this mud brick um, wall built on top of that to a total of around like 38 feet, which is pretty big when you're a short little, you know, five foot one Israelite, which I'm sure they all were, right? I was Goliath, but they were Israelites. As a matter of fact, there's another picture here that's very helpful to me. So you see that kind of, uh, they call it a revetment uh, stone wall right there. That's kind of like holding in, holding in the, the mountain so it doesn't corrode and things like that. And then above that, you see the mud brick wall up there and you see how the city kind of elevates to the top of that stone wall like that. So there was pretty significant walls going on here. It was pretty heavy. Now, that brick wall might have had houses that made up it, but still, it's still high above the ground. And once again, this is a massive obstacle. But but notice here, if we go back to our, our text, and you can move to the next slide, um, notice if you look back on your, on your text in verse 2, that God is very certain that they will conquer these walls. They will take down these walls. Notice the assurance that he puts in verse 2 of the chapter. He says, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's already done. It's already complete. Matter of fact, notice that. Notice that. He also assures by even saying, hey, and it's king and it's valiant warriors. All these Israelites can see are these menacing walls. But God is already saying the warriors are already in your hand as well. God is giving them great assurance. The focus is on believing, on trusting, on obeying. But the assurance is very strong. And then you see Israel carries out the mission word for word once again, just like we saw with uh, the Jordan River, right? It's, it, it kind of reads a little bit more like setting up the tabernacle than it does going to war, right? God gives exact commands and the people follow it out to the letter. Verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Carry the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of Yahweh. Then he said to the peoples, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the ark of Yahweh. And so it happened that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before Yahweh passed on forward and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came after them. And the armed men went before the priests and blew, who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people saying, you shall not shout nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of Yahweh taken around the city, circling it once. Then it came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests carried the ark of Yahweh and the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh went on continually and blew the trumpets and the armed men went before them and the rear guard came after the ark of Yahweh and they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camps and they did so for six Days. You guys were getting nervous. Man, are they just going to repeat this cycle every single day? No, thankfully, he decides finally to abbreviate at verse 14. But, but notice the emphasis, even here, as the, as the action is being unfolded. Well, first off, just imagine it, right? This is probably a fairly large group of Israelites coming out against this fairly small, at least in, in circumference, uh, uh, city of Jericho. So 
I imagine, like, while they're going around, people are still trying to get in line to go around. And, and while they're finally going around the whole city and returning back to the camp, Israelites are still trying to go around, you know, just because the line is so big. This is a massive thing. But, but notice, when you read your Bible, and that's what I want you to do, I want you to pay attention to the details in the Bible. Notice what the emphasis is. It's not on the people, on their on their walking, what is the what is the thing that's repeated again and again? What is the character that is repeated again and again and again? The ark, right? That is where God wants your attention to be. Just like with uh, the crossing of the Jordan, right? It's all about the ark. The action moves all around the ark. And notice, what does the ark represent? You, you see it there. It's described the ark of Yahweh. The, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, verse 9, the Ark, 11, the Ark of Yahweh, verse 13, the Ark of Yahweh, 13, the Ark of Yahweh, again. But notice, one time it's described in a special way. And this kind of gives away kind of what it represented, verse 8. Notice, Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before Yahweh passed on before and blew the trumpets. Notice, they they shortened the ark of Yahweh just to Yahweh. The ark carried the presence of their God. And that was what Joshua and the narrator wants you to see. This is about God's battle. God is circling the city once a day for six days. God's presence. But notice there's an intentionality to the purposes of our God. There's an intentionality to the plan. Why is God making his people do this? Why is God making his people be silent and not say a thing? Well, notice, God wants the people to see that he is the active one in this battle. And he wants them to see that they are the passive ones. You do nothing. You do not shout. You do not anything. You watch as I bring you the victory. And isn't this kind of how God often is in the way he saves? He wants to remind us of how little we contribute to our victories. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, right? You know this verse. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith and this, not of yourself even. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast. Following God, believing the gospel, is a very very big attack on pride. God has prescribed things. God has purposed things. God plans things out in your life to destroy your pride. I want you to be watching me, not you. That is how he works in salvation, and that is often how his wisdom works out in our lives as well, to destroy our pride and elevate his power, elevate his greatness. That's what he's doing here, and that's what he does in our lives as well. That's God's intentional purposes. There's very intention, there's very strong intentions in his purposes in this plan. But let's look at another thing we learn about our God from this conquest. Thirdly, see God's demanding holiness. God's demanding holiness. The, the tension is building with each day. Can you imagine? Day number one. I mean, it's just kind of nerve-wracking. Day number two, it's still a little nerve-wracking. Day number three, okay, and now it's starting to become kind of a little bit routine. 
Day number four, but now I'm looking forward to day number seven. Day number five, day number seven is coming. Day number six, just one more day. Day number seven, the tension is getting very thick as each day increases. Matter of fact, the narrator can't even stand the tension anymore either. He kind of loses control. Verse 14, he kind of just skips all of those days. And then notice how he describes the final day. Then it happened on the seventh day, they rose early at the breaking of dawn and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. Now it happened that on the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpet and Joshua said to the people, shout for Yahweh has given you the city. Or so it seems, right? But then look at this. Notice verse 17. Then he gives all of this instruction right before we hear what happens. Verse 17, instruction, 18, instruction, 19, instruction. It isn't until verse 20 that you see the narration continue. Once again, this author has this annoying habit of just when the action's getting exciting to delay to, to bring a little bit of information into focus. And, and what is it exactly? Why is he doing this? Well, there's this sober reminder that our author, that Joshua, wants us to remember before we engage in this victory. It, it's kind of like, and this is how I thought about it, because, okay, I've got small kids, so all illustrations revolve around small kids. But it's kind of like if I was to bring my small kids to Disney World, I'd be, this is what i do, in the parking lot. I would stop just before we're about to go into Disney World, the, the magical kingdom of joy and happiness where no troubles happen, right? I would stop in that parking lot. I would say, this is going to be a great day, isn't it, kids? But I want to warn you about how to ruin this day. Before you go in, be very careful to what? Obey mom and dad. Be kind to your brother and sister, or you will ruin this day, right? Before something amazing is happening, often God stops, pauses, do not ruin this wonderful moment. You can make this a terrible, a terrible day. What does God say? Verse 17, shout for Yahweh has given you the city and the city shall be devoted to destruction. It and all that is in it belong to Yahweh, only Rahab the harlot, and all that are with her in the house shall live, because she did. She hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest you, lest, uh, sorry, lest as you are devoting them to destruction, you also take some of the things devoted to destruction and make the camp of Israel devoted to destruction and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. They shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. What is going on here? God is reminding them of a few important things. Before you go in and enjoy this victory, do not ruin this moment. God is taking this time to say, you need to be separate. You need to be careful. Remember, the first fruits of this city are all going to me. And also, you must take none of them, lest you make the camp itself like this city, devoted to destruction. God has a heavy lesson about his holiness here, you could say. 
He has a heavy lesson about the danger of coveting something that's not yours. Notice verse 18, second half, right? You will make Israel become devoted to destruction. You have to keep things off limits. This is all before they enjoy the bounty and the treasure and the victory, right? You have to give to the Lord first things first. And you also have to be careful to follow my instructions to a letter. And this gets us to verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down beneath itself so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. This is, this is an amazing scene. And actually, I showed you that picture on purpose so that you can understand something. How did these walls fall? How did Israel go into these walls? Well, probably what crumbled first was those mud brick walls that were above the stone walls, and they crumbled down. And notice, the walls are described as falling beneath the walls. So you see the the top layer falls down, and then what does that create? That creates a nice little ramp. And then what do the Israelites do? They go up into the city. Matter of fact, archaeology has not only discovered um, a massive burn layer of destruction at this point, but they've also discovered massive stores of grain. It's as if this city was waiting for a long siege that never happened. And they didn't also uh, get raided or anything. The, the people that burned down the city weren't interested in taking any of the objects that they found in the city. No looting whatsoever. But it's also a very frightening scene. Look at verse 21. And they devoted to destruction everything in the city, both man and woman, Young and old, and ox and sheep, and donkey, with the edge of the sword. That is a frightening, sober destruction. Everything was destroyed. And this, of course, is referring to God's prescription for how they were going to conduct warfare in the promised land. Jericho was a special exception because not only did he want them to destroy all the inhabitants, but he also wanted them to give all of the gold and the silver and put it into the treasury of the Lord. But this scene right here puts before you a dilemma. Who is this God of the Bible that would command something like this? And before and before you start making your own little theologies in your head, I would suggest that the first voice you need to listen to when you're handling issues like this in the Bible is God's Word itself. Well, what is God's Word's reason for why this is happening? Is this just random? Is this just a vindictive God just getting even? Are these just soldiers out of control? No. What does God's Word say? Well, really quick, I know we've talked about it before, but I'm just going to tell you what God's word says about what's happening here. First off, this judgment is righteous. This judgment is righteous. Canaan's sin has been described throughout the five books of Moses again and again and again. You could look at Leviticus 18 to see how heinous their sin was. We're talking about we're talking about homosexuality, we're talking about adultery, we're talking about murder, we're talking about offering your kids to idols. Uh, graven uh, sacrifice, uh, graven images, offering your kids as a burnt offering to idols. 
Now, when I was studying um, Joshua, you know, 10 years ago when I was in school, it was shocking to me. It was shocking to me how parallel uh, the situations that Canaan was being judged for were with our own day and age today. It's like, oh, that's stuff that's happening here in America all the time. Right? Abortion. Right? Adultery, homosexuality, the list goes on and on. I, I actually could look through, look through the headings of the last month on a news service and show you examples of every single Canaanite sin that is being paraded around and very proud of. Matter of fact, to the point, to the point being that I even say that to you and you're like yawning at me because it's so like, yeah, that's just the way America is. But just remember, this activity brings God's judgment, and it is a righteous judgment that God is saying is going to come. But this judgment also, uh, one more thing about God's righteous judgment, right? If, if he does not judge evil, he is not righteous, he is not good, he is a, he is a wicked God. But if he is a just judge, he must judge. That's, it's, a, it's a righteous judgment. If there is sin, he must judge it. But this judgment we also see in Scripture is also a patient judgment. God told Abraham way back in the day when he was promising the land, I am going to give you this land, but not quite yet, because the, as he says in Genesis 15, 16, the iniquity of the Amorites, which is just a catch-all term for the Canaanites, is not yet complete. Right? God has been waiting for hundreds of years and been patient for hundreds of years to allow them to repent, and they have not. This judgment is patient. This judgment is also good. God is good and perfect in all that he does. Everything that God does is something that should be worshipped. That's what the Bible tells us. Matter of fact, all of God's goodness is described in Exodus 33 and 34, And one of the qualities of his goodness is that he will leave no guilty one unpunished. If he leaves a good one unpunished, he is not good. This judgment is good. It's a display of his perfection. This judgment is also expected. You could say it it should be expected, right? God promised to bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse Abraham. And when Canaan is fighting against Israel... He is going to curse them. But also, God had given the Canaanites years and years and years of patience. And how does God respond to years and years and years of patience that are spurned and rejected? How does God respond to you when you do not respond to the gospel after years and years and years of hearing it? He eventually judges you, cuts off your opportunity to hear the gospel and condemns you in your sin. This is expected. This is what God has told you he will do. But I would say another thing that really helps me understand this. This judgment is also pastoral. This judgment is also pastoral. Now think about this. God has judged many nations many different ways through many different instruments. Sometimes he judges nations through other wicked nations. Sometimes he judges nations through natural catastrophes. God could have judged the Canaanites in almost an unlimited amount of ways. Why did he choose his people to be the instruments of his judgment? Because he wanted to show his people the serious nature of sin. This is what sin does. Sin will ruin your life. 
Sin will separate you from me. Sin will harden your hearts so that you will not repent when I am patient with you. God wants to show his people the serious nature of their sin. God also wants to protect them from sin. It it talks about this all throughout the Pentateuch as well, right? Cut them off lest they teach you their ways. But another thing it's important to remember about this judgment, this judgment is also measured. God prescribes exactly how it will happen, when it will happen, and when it will stop. This judgment is also measured. That's the scene. That's the destruction. Notice the conclusion here. Verse 27 of Joshua 6. Let's go to verse 27. Yeah. Uh, so, so Yahweh was with Joshua, and the report about him was in all the land. Right? This was a massive victory, supernatural in its quality, and the news about Joshua and Israelite, Israelites just continues to spread. Right? We see this every time they have a conquest. Right? When they cross the Jordan, news about them spreads everywhere. Now, they've defeated Jericho. And news about them spreads everywhere. But there's one more quality aspect about God's character that I really think is emphasized for us in this passage, and I don't want you to miss it. Let's look at one more thing we learn about God. We've seen God's commanding presence. We've seen God's intentional plan. We've seen God's demanding holiness. But notice, there is an emphasis here on this one final quality. See also God's inviting grace. See also God's inviting grace. Maybe this is surprising to you. Maybe this story just seems all doom and gloom to you. But actually, I would say the other emphasis outside of God's holiness is God's inviting grace. Judgment didn't have to be the Canaanites' only option. But it was. Why was it? Because they had hardened their hearts. Refusing to let anyone in or out of the city is a sign of hardness of heart. But as we know, judgment didn't have to be their only option. They could have responded in years and years and years of patience to the Lord and humbled themselves before him and repented. They could have even been like Rahab and repented when they heard that Israel was near. But they didn't because why? The Bible says again and again, their hearts were hardened. But there is a, an obvious invitation to God's grace that we see here in the passage as well. Notice, right after this destruction, right before we get to the conclusion in verse 26, there's, this, this, there's another parenthesis of explanation. The author wants you to see the clear invitation of God's grace that is available even for lost sinners like the Canaanites. Verse 22 Now to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all that she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all of her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. Verse 24, but they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. However, verse 25, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua preserved alive. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Notice how 
Notice how the story of Rahab is weaved between the account of Jericho's destruction. It's as if the author wants to get your attention and show you how much grace is even available for a Canaanite. A Canaanite who repents, yes, who believes, yes, but a Canaanite, nonetheless. Look at how inviting God's grace is. God's grace, number one, saves sinners, right? God's grace saves sinners. You know it's grace because we see the judgment that is happening to all of the people like her around her, right? God's grace is on display to Rahab, isn't it? She doesn't deserve this, but she is receiving grace. Why? Not because she's perfect, but because she is a sinner with faith. What does it mean to have faith? It means she has fled to her future judge to be her present savior. That's what it means. She has said, I am in danger of judgment. God has been patient with me, but his patience is growing short. And I'm going to flee to him to become my present savior. But God's grace is on display here because God's grace saves sinners. The worst of all sinners, too. Rahab was a harlot, a prostitute. God's grace is available for you as well when you find yourself backed against God's judgment. God's grace is available for you as well. Even in, even in the, the moment of destruction, God's grace is available. But notice, this is amazing. God's grace not only saves sinners, it also transfers sinners. Did you notice this? Notice, Rahab isn't just enabled to escape and go on her merry way as a Canaanite. Rahab doesn't just get a get-out-of-Jericho-free card. Rahab doesn't just have, a, have an escape and run away. Where do they put her? They put her outside, verse 23, outside the camp of Israel. Now, you got to know the Old Testament, but since we don't have a lot of time, I'll just explain it to you. She is being treated here as the Israelites would treat themselves when they're coming back from warfare. They have to stay outside of the camp of Israel to purify themselves. They have to wash and then be clean. And she is being treated here as as a captive who is being who is being taken in and and being made an Israelite herself. She's put outside of Israel. But notice she doesn't stay outside because verse 25 says she is in the midst of Israel to this day, right? Her status has been transferred from Canaanite to Israelite. There's something else here marvelous. God's grace not only saves sinners, transfers sinners to a new people to become part of his people, But God's grace also exalts sinners. I love the story of Rahab. Because the story of Rahab just displays how God's grace can totally transform an individual, but also mightily use a transformed individual with a bad past. Did you know that Rahab was in the line of Christ? Rahab married somebody from the line of Judah, who was in the line of David, who was in the line of Jesus. That's what we see in in Matthew 1. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, 
and Solomon the father of Boaz, by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, another Moabite, by the way, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Of all people that you would pick to use in your plan, Rahab doesn't sound like one of them, but that's how God's grace is. But notice, notice, she had to be found a sinner first. She had to realize her judgment first. But that enabled her to flee to her future judge to become her present savior. That enabled her to be transferred from a Canaanite to an Israelite. And that enabled her to be used mightily by God. That is how it works. God's grace is inviting though, isn't it? Because that same grace that God extends to Rahab can also be extended to you if you own your sin and go to him with your sin. So, to wrap it up, we see here the God of the Bible is not safe. He's not nice. He is a God of great commanding insistence, though, right? You may not be Lord of your own life if he is in your life. He is a God who operates in such ways as to crush our pride and to humble us. He is a God of holiness that demands holiness of his people. But he's also a God that provides great grace and may even parade that grace in the lives of his people in such amazing ways. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we're thankful for this evening and this night we get to spend studying your word and hearing about your great grace. And we pray that our hearts would even be changed and molded. You'd use this to humble our pride when we think we're, we're so important. And you'd use this passage to even bring us near when we feel like we are too sinful. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.